lead by saying verse 1. Do join in with verses 2, 3 and 4 there on the service sheets and they'll be up on the screen as well. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. Thank you all for reading that. Let me lead us in prayer. We just acknowledge, uh, even in those few verses, Lord, that you're a God who has a message to uh, broadcast to the world. And we pray that uh, what you say publicly and to the world at large, you would speak graciously to each one of us. As we turn to your word tonight, we pray for a clear message from you to each person here in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am still in New Year's resolution mode, and to that end, I'm trying to chart a course for myself and for the church towards spiritual health, and I hope it's okay to do that from Psalm 104 tonight. It means that we only have an introduction to Psalm 104 tonight. We'll be returning to it for the next two or three weeks. But as I pondered Psalm 104, I was glad that I'd set myself just four verses because I realized I had to travel back to the last series we had in the Psalms when we looked at Psalm 103 because these two Psalms belong together in the Bible. There is a verbal echo between the two Psalms. Uh, for a start. You might find it helpful, I don't know if you're close enough to a printed copy of the Bible, I I realize you've got the reading on the service sheet, but if you can actually clap eyes on Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 at the same time roughly, that will help you, because I mentioned a verbal echo. The first and last verse of each psalm is pretty much the same. And that's what I want to focus our attention on today, because repeatedly the psalmist addresses himself, his soul, his inmost being, and he calls on himself to praise the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, we might say in one version or another. Praise my soul, the King of heaven. He's talking to himself, addressing his inmost being and calling on himself to praise uh, the Lord. We're privileged at All Saints to have, as a member of our congregation, one of the grandchildren of one of the 20th century's great Christian leaders, the Welshman Martin Lloyd-Jones. Christopher Catherwood, if you've met him, is his grandson, or one of them. Uh, Lloyd-Jones had trained in medicine before he became a preacher, and he was a doctor of the soul, you could say, as a result And he understood the need we have to address our souls and bring the truth of God 
and the greatness of God home to our inner beings. Now, he preached a series of sermons on one occasion in his life about spiritual depression. And he made this very point uh, in relation to another of the Psalms. Let me quote from him. He said this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts, he said, that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You haven't originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment, he's talking about another psalm. This man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. That's from Psalm 42. His soul had been depressing him and crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I'll speak to you. And his point is that we are never absolutely helpless victims of our emotions. He says, look, don't let your feelings dictate you. You do the dictating. Look inwards and bring God's truth to bear on what you discover when you do that. And that, it seems to me, is an apt comment if we wanted to make it on Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, my soul, verse 1. Verse 22, praise the Lord, my soul. Psalm 104, verse 1, praise the Lord, my soul. Then just the last couple of sentences, verse 35, praise the Lord, my soul, praise the Lord. He's talking to himself, and he's bringing the truth of God to bear on himself. And particularly, a call to ourselves, a discipline even, to praise God surfaces in these two psalms. Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 both make this point in slightly different ways. Psalm 103, if we were to do a reprise on the last series, focuses on God as the God of redemption. And it's probably well known to us as a result. We have versions, ancient and modern, which we sing. Praise my soul, the King of heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like thee his praise should sing? And in a dialogue with my soul to praise the God of redemption. Psalm 104 is slightly different. The same idea of that inner dialogue with my soul is there, but the call here is to praise the God of creation. Now, we do have versions of this which we sing. O worship the Lord, all glorious above. O gratefully sing his power and his love. Our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise, is a loose version of this psalm. After the sermon, we're going to sing... Uh, another song, more modern, that draws on it as well. Anyway, I'm really glad that we're taking time to look at the psalm over four weeks because I suspect we gravitate more easily to praising the God of redemption than we do to praising the God of creation. And the Bible actually puts Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 alongside each other and holds the two together. I don't know whether this is a... I've, I've put a long note to self here. Um, this may be fascinating to me, but not fascinating to you. I'll try and explain why I think it's important. There was a striking step change uh, 
that I passed through when I was younger and when I was uh, being trained in Christian ministry. In our evangelism, when we were sharing the good news with other people, we gradually realized, and I'm, I'm casting back into the 1980s now, okay, so forgive me for this historical wonder that we've got at the moment. We gradually realized that the older generations at that point could grasp the need for a response to God and to enjoy personal salvation. They had, by their backgrounds and by years of sort of Christian culture that influenced people, they had that sense that there was a God and that they owed their existence to him and you could call on people in that situation who who knew that and had that sort of mental furniture in their lives to admit their sin, to believe that Christ died for their sin and to commit themselves to him. We called it the ABC, the sort of sinner's prayer. And you could preach like that or share the gospel in the pub with a friend like that and often you could be confident that people would say, yeah, I'm going to leave the building having done that ABC, taken those three simple steps and thanking God as they've done so that they were ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. But what we discovered as we were pondering how culture and society was changing at that stage was that a younger generation, you couldn't start with that message of redemption in quite the same way. You had to start further back because they didn't grasp their sin simply because they didn't see themselves as accountable to the God who'd made them, their creator. Now, Psalm 103 and Psalm 104 belong together. Put it another way, we, we know, don't we, the need for a, a meta-narrative today. And you don't have to be a Christian to appreciate that. If Mark Zuckerberg changes the name of Facebook to meta, he is onto something. People he knows need an overarching picture, a meta-narrative to hold their universe together. And a message of personal salvation on its own could seem trivial to people. Could it be that sometimes people don't reject our message, not because they think it's untrue, but just because they rate it as unimportant? Because it's a personal message they they judge because of the way we've presented it. Me, little me, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, lovely. But they ask, what's the big picture for our planet? What's the meta-narrative? Right then, put salvation, Psalm 103, on the backcloth of creation, the whole world, creation as a whole. And that's what Psalm 104 is going to call on us to do. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Lord God, you are very great. So no apologies for unpacking this look at creation. It is the vital context, this great overarching narrative from creation to the new creation that makes sense of my personal salvation. I'm ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And it's why the Bible always keeps those two together. Now, we're not going to look at the start over, um, in, in over much detail at Psalm 104. We will come back uh, and go further next week. But as a sneak 
preview, the psalm as a whole is unpacking the first chapter of the Bible, that tour in Genesis chapter 1 of all the different elements of God's creation, all of it dreamed up by God, let there be light, sun, moon and stars, let there be land, let there be vegetation, let there be animals, let there be humanity and so on, all of it spoken into existence and God said and it was so, all of it bringing God's satisfaction and delight, God saw that it was good, even very good. So Genesis 1 gets unpacked in the different areas of Psalm 104. And we've got the first bit covered in our verses today, the creation of light. The Lord wraps himself in light. The skies, he stretches out the heavens like a tent. And there's no lowly bungalow for God. He lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. The clouds, those heavenly irrigation systems that we've experienced even today. The jet streams are his transport system, his highways. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. And he gives orders to the wind, we're to understand, and the weather systems. He gives them orders, and as a result, they speak for him. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire, his servant. In our family, we just happened to be in a position to see that this week because we were in the mountains. We were looking east towards Mont Blanc as the sun set behind us in uh, the west, and the moon rose over the rooftop of Europe, 4,800 meters high. It was a full moon in a blue sky over the pink snowfields. But you don't need to be in the Alps to see that sort of thing. Psalm 104 says God does it everywhere. And he calls on us to praise him. He does it all the time in what we wrongly call the laws of nature. They're only the laws of nature because he set nature up and he governs it the whole time. What's Genesis 1 and Psalm 104 saying about God as creator? Well, it's telling us that he is the maker. He's distinct from creation. He's not a part of creation. He made it, and he sustains it and keeps it going. He's distinct from creation, but he's not distant from creation. He's involved in it every moment, everywhere. I'm always moved by the idea that God's creation bears testimony to his goodness and praises him if we only had eyes to see it. You can think of all sorts of different ways that would be appropriate for you as you look on creation. The snowdrop in the garden behind a hedge which no human being might see, nodding its head in praise of its maker. There's a bit in Gray's Elegy on a Country Churchyard which says, Full many a gem of purest ray serene, the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear. For many a flower is born to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. Well, it's not really a waste, because just because we don't give those hidden gems and flowers any purpose doesn't mean they lack purpose. They are doing their thing. They're praising their maker. And I speak as somebody who loves gardening, Maybe for others who are scientists, it'll actually be the lab where that sort of experience is yours or theirs. 
I've never met somebody called Ernest Lucas. I don't know if he's still alive. We used to read him a lot. He wrote about the way science and faith are friends, not enemies. And there's a lovely story he tells, which I want to give him in his own words. He says this, One of the deepest religious experiences I have had happened in the Radcliffe Science Library in Oxford. As I say, he wasn't in the lab, he was in a library. As I spent a morning studying the chemistry and biochemistry of a vitamin called biotin, I became increasingly amazed at how each atom in that molecule contributed, both on its own and in conjunction with the others, to the function of that molecule in the living cell. When I put the books and journals aside at the end of the morning, I had a deep sense of awe. I rephrased the words of the psalmist, this time Psalm 19. The vitamins are telling the glory of God, and the living cell proclaims his handiwork. And that is sort of what we will see as we go through the psalm. All God's works praise his name. The whole creation knows and praises the wonder, the power, the love of God. But of course, it is God's people, his saints, who particularly can appreciate his compassion and his wonder and his love and express it. They hear the voice of creation and they add their own praise to it in response. And so the challenge, the sort of New Year's resolution aspect of the sermon for me is this. Am I willing to learn that lesson personally? To say to myself, praise the Lord, O my soul, for the wonders of creation. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to take time later on tonight to talk to yourself, to your inmost being? Say, Simon Scott, put in your name, remember what a great God you have. What an awesome God he is. And fasten on some area of creation that uh, warms your heart. Are you willing to take time to do that, even tonight, to find time just to talk to yourself and then to open your mouth in praise to him? One more story and I'm done. This is a story about a, a, a gypsy evangelist, a gypsy smith he was called, I don't even know exactly when he he lived, but there were uh, revival movements in his time um, associated with all sorts of different aspects of the Christian church at that point. Anyway, a delegation once came to him to ask how they might experience personal and mass revival as he had. He was a very able proclaimer of the gospel uh, from a sort of slightly sort of if I can put it like this, uncultured backgrounds. They wanted to know how God could work through them as he had through, that, through him. They wanted to be used the way Gypsy Smith was. And without hesitating, he gave an interesting answer. He said, go home. You want revival? Go home. Lock yourself in your room. Kneel down in the middle of the floor. And with a piece of chalk, draw a circle round yourself. And there on your knees, pray fervently and brokenly that God would start a revival within that chalk circle. That's where the Holy Spirit needs to work first, you see. And that's why the start and end of the psalm is important. 
So he was encouraging people to pray, Lord, I long for you to send a revival to my nation, to my church, to my marriage and my children. But Lord, let it begin in this circle. Let it begin in me. And that, I'm convinced, is the call of Psalm 104 to us. Praise the Lord, my soul. Let's pray together. We do pray that you would revive us as a church and a nation. And we dare to ask you'd help us to pray that way uh, for ourselves, each individual here. And put a song of praise in each of our hearts and on each of our lips, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen.